Well, we come now in Revelation 21 and 22 to the final, final consolation, that this is the final encouragement that this will be our ultimate destiny, that this is the end of all our belief, our faith, our strugglings, our strivings in this world. In the end, we will live forever in God's kingdom. And here, of course, we have, I suppose, at the best, only very shadowy kind of outlines of what it will be like. But let's just uh, sit back and, and relax and enjoy the, uh, the wonderful things that are being promised here. Verse 2 of chapter 21 he sees the holy city, this is us, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Our eternal destiny is now being prepared in heaven, and the preparations that are being made are, of course, in reflection of what we go through in this life. So God and the Lord Jesus are preparing for us a unique eternity, a name given to each of us that nobody else can quite enter into apart from us who are given it. That the kingdom in that sense will be different for each of us in, in one sense because who we are is different. We are all unique in, in that sense. And yet the New Jerusalem is adorned and prepared as a bride has adorned herself for her husband. But what is that adorning? Well, it is the, the, the fine linen, the white linen, which is the righteousness of the saints, we're told. And so the preparation of the woman is not by, as it were, doing works, but it is by a continual, repeated faith in the fact that my Lord sees me as perfect. That is what the preparation is, as Jesus said. This is the work of God, to believe, basically, in him. To believe that we really are counted as righteous, even though we are not. That is the essence of our preparation. Preparing ourselves in the sense of believing in the extent of his love for us. Then verse 3, he hears this great voice that the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is now with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, I, uh, I've gone down all sorts of roads uh, philosophically in philosophy and in theology and the rest of it like I'm sure you have. And uh, I've come back here to a very basic uh, belief that I had, uh, I suppose, when I first believed. And it is this, that God exists as a person, in a personal form. And of course people will say, no, 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 that's far too primitive, that's far too simple. Uh, those descriptions of God as a person are all anthropomorphisms. They're speaking of God as if he's a person just because of our kind of limitation. And yet I've been all around all that, and I've come back. I've come back, Classics Nouveau, right back to this basic belief that God is a personal being. And incidentally, not that it proves anything, but I'll just mention it, that in academic theology there is also a trend even in that direction, even in academic theology. So what I'm saying is not based on, on some sort of primitive conception. This is a belief that I have that I wish to share with you that is based on uh, a serious uh, amount of, of reflection and study and, and, uh, and thought. And, of course, you could say, well, God is spirit. Well, God is spirit in the same sense that our God is a consuming fire. It doesn't mean whenever you see fire, well, that's God. 
God is manifest in his spirit, of, of course, but that does not take away from God existing as a personal being in whose image and after whose likeness we have been created. And I find it very hard to believe that that's talking about a mental, spiritual similarity because as the heavens are far above the earth, so are his ways really from, from our ways. So I take this verse to then, sorry, 3 to mean that God himself will live with us and he will be their God verse 3 now that is quoting the, the promises to Abraham which are the, the beginning if you like of the gospel Genesis 17 7, 7 and 8 that I will be a God unto your seed Abraham's seed who is Jesus and I will be their God and the whole relationship between God and Jesus he says throughout John 17 is to be shared with us now, he has a personal relationship with God as his Father. So then, I, I see even right back in that promise to Abraham about God being our personal God. Of course, the promise was to Abraham and his seed, who Paul says quite rightly, Galatians 3.8 was in the singular, and is Jesus. But for all of us who are baptized into Jesus, all that is true of Jesus in that sense becomes true of us. And particularly, his relationship with God becomes ours. So I see then the kingdom of heaven becoming the kingdom of God on earth. In the sense that there is a relocation. That's what this verse, and later on in chapter 22, that's what it seems to me to be implying. Now this is by far from the only place that you uh, get this idea. Um, for starters... When he says there, verse 3, God himself shall be with them. I mean, God himself, you follow that phrase through, it's talking about God personally, Yahweh God of Israel. Not, not uh, really Jesus, not God manifest in Jesus, but God himself as a person. Now the idea of God dwelling with men, <clears throat> or tabernacling with men, Himself, I think, is the idea at the end of Ezekiel 48, verse 35, which says that the name of Jerusalem in the millennium will be Yahweh is there. Now, okay, you can take that maybe in a more figurative way, talk about God manifestation. I, myself, putting it in, in line with other biblical evidence, would be inclined to take that in a literal sense. Remember Job in Job 19, he says that looking through the, the tunnel, really, of all his own sufferings in his life, loss of family, health, wealth, the lot, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last day I shall see him, whom I shall see for myself, in my flesh, that is, I as a person, will see my Redeemer. And I think the Redeemer that he had in mind, ultimately, was, was Yahweh as his as his redeemer, and so <clears throat> Job had that light at the end of at the end of his tunnel. And in the parable of the uh, of the king who has guests at the wedding of his son, it's Matthew uh, 22 verse 11. The king himself, we're told in the parable, comes in to see the guests at the wedding of his son. Now the king and the son are different. The king himself comes to the guests. Now, <clears throat> you got it uh, again in chapter 22 here, verse, verse 4, 
they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Well, the, the name that is to be in the foreheads of God's children is, I believe, in the end, the, the name of, of Yahweh. And that's picking up, as Revelation at the end does, earlier statements in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3 verse 12, 14 verse 1, that the name of Yahweh will be in our foreheads. So, the pronoun there, him and his, which we got there in verse 4 of 22, I think is talking about God, because God's name, it's his name, which will be in our foreheads, and we shall therefore see his face. I think you have that alluded to when uh, in Hebrews it talks about holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Um, I think it makes prayer and all relationship with God and all spirituality somewhat difficult if we have the idea that God is basically no more than uh, some sort of phantom, than a, a cloud, than some sort of, some sort of essence that's uh, out there or up there or whatever. God is a personal God uh, and is presented to us as having location. It doesn't mean that he is limited by location, but he is presented as having location. The fact you have location does not mean that you are tied to it, or that you are limited uh, spatially, I suppose to be the word, uh, that you're limited by, by space. So then, I see God then as personally existent in heaven, we on this earth made in his image, uh, and likeness, and that's why you know, James says you should not curse any man, because we are made in the image and likeness of God. That is the unique significance and the wonder of of human beings. There's another passage in Isaiah 25, six to nine, that talks again about this sort of final consolation: how God's people will enjoy a feast in Jerusalem at the Lord's return, the veil will be withdrawn from our eyes, all tears will be wiped away, which is the context here in Revelation uh, uh, 21 and 22. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God, this is Yahweh. So then, I think that there will be an ability, uh, an opportunity for us to, as it were, say to the people of this world, look, this is the invisible God that I staked my life on. It was because of him that I made the decisions I did about my career, about who I married, uh, my attitude to wealth, my attitude to all sorts of things. It was because I believed in him. It was him whom I thanked regularly, several times a day, for my food. And you guys thought I was crazy, giving thanks at work. And here he is. And, you know, I, I can sort of see that, see that happening, uh, as it were. It, it makes sense of so, so much. So, Revelation 21, verse uh, 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The Greek seems to imply, shall wipe away all the tears that are in the eyes of men. That is very uh, personal and very intimate, to wipe away the tears that are in all eyes. Now, what are these tears? Well, the same word for wiping away is found in Acts 3.19, when we're told that when the Lord Jesus returns, there will be a blotting out of sin. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, this is Acts 3.19, 
that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ. So the blotting out, the wiping away of sin in its final sense, will be at the Lord's return. So the tears are tears, I guess, of recognition of our own sin. Because the purpose of the Day of Judgment is not for God's benefit. It's not for God to have a look at us and see what happened in our lives and sort of make a decision. He knows the end from the beginning. The whole purpose of that, as it were, going through is, I think, to bring us to self-knowledge, to understand the degree to which we have been saved by grace. You remember in the parable, Jesus is going to say to the righteous, well done, when I was hungry you fed me, when I was thirsty you gave me something to drink, well done, well done, he's going to list all their good works, you did this for me. And there in the very judgment presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to argue with him. We are going to argue with him. No, I did not. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Now, it's a pretty convicted person who's going to argue back with the Lord Jesus, who has eyes as a flame of fire, who is standing there judging you at the last day, and you're arguing back with him. You must be absolutely convicted. Look, sorry, Lord, you, this is mistaken... Uh, you, there's a mistaken uh, identity here. Uh, you got a wrong guy. This is not me that did that. Maybe you're looking for Daniel or Paul or somebody, but not me. Yes, you. And of course, it's because he imputes righteousness to us. The possible, uh, it's possible, the possible implication of that, uh, of that parable, and of course, one's wary about taking parables too far. Uh, the the implication could just be that when we are accepted at the day of judgment we cannot believe it we just have a problem accepting it maybe that's why Jesus said that he will come forth and serve us at the banquet at the messianic banquet that like no 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 yes 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 you're really here and this wiping away of the tears in our eyes after we have been accepted, I think may suggest something similar, a similar process. I mean, humanly, I know we shall be changed, but who knows, maybe we will be a bit more human than we might imagine in, in one sense. I don't mean in a moral, sinful sense, but in a basic structure of human existence, or existence as persons, let's say. Um, when you've wished for something and wanted desperately something more than anything else in your life and then you actually get it very often people have a problem with accepting it is it really so? is this really me? Um, it, hasn't there been a mistake? that would sort of yeah, that would add up to me that actually he accepts us and then he has to say, as again in the parable, come, inherit the kingdom, as if, like, what are you waiting for? Come and inherit the kingdom that's prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the tears in our eyes then, with the connection with Acts 3.19, are, of course, the recognition that we really should not be there. And, of course, that basic spirit should be in us now that, wow, I will be saved, but I should not be. But I will be, and I believe I will be. And yet, I should not. That basic attitude should be ours today. It's really like, again, the parable of the, the labourers. 
they all get their penny a day and the guys who only worked for, for an hour uh, walking away from, as it were, the judgment, clutching their pennies, saying, I honestly did not deserve this. I only worked for one hour and I was left in the marketplace all day. That means they were old or feeble or sick or handicapped or whatever. Nobody wanted to have them. And wow, I got this. That would be our sense, or it should be in this life uh, as well. Believing that we really will be there and yet just know I shouldn't be. One's inclined to remember how Genesis 42:51, Joseph says that God made him forget made him forget all his toil, all his sufferings in his father's house. And he had, it seems, humanly speaking, more suffering and pain and betrayal and hatred for no reason against him than maybe many, many people. And yet God did a psychological miracle upon him. He made him forget it. Maybe not in terms of uh, obliterating memory cells, in the sense of taking away the uh, actual awareness of what happened. That would be a, a kind of a, a too simplistic a way out. But enabling him to understand it all differently. And of course he says those, those lovely words, you meant all this for evil, but God meant it for good. And that will, of course, be so true in our experience. And I'm sure a lot of us, like me, have got those words in Genesis, they're underlined in your Bibles. You meant it for evil, but God in the end meant this for good. And that is going to be how we're going to feel at the Day of Judgment. That these tears will be wiped away from our eyes. And yet, of course, the wonderful thing is that <clears throat> all this stuff can start to come true now. It, it really can. Because, verse 5, I make all things new, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has started now. Verse 6, I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And yet we now take that water of life. This is one of John's themes, John 4, 14, that uh, we now drink of that water now like the Samaritan woman, that Jesus is right now the fountain of that water of life. It's all happening or starting to happen now. That's the even more wonderful thing. Now, verse 7, I will be his God and he shall be my son. This is very much the language of the promises to David uh, about Jesus. And as we've said, all that's true of Jesus, the special seed, is true of us. And the relationship between the father and son, which, as I see it, involves uh, a physical, if you like, uh, presence with each other, that will be shared with us. Verse 8, But the fearful, unbelieving, abominable murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will be given the second death. Now, they died once in this life. They're resurrected, judged, and then they, they die again because they're punished. So I would take all those people there, all those horrible things that are listed there, as being the behavior of people who were responsible to God, who were called to be into the kingdom, called in to be in the kingdom, but didn't want it. Let's just go through the words a little bit more. The fearful. You know that word's only used twice in the New Testament. And both times it's about the disciples. 
Matthew 8.26, Mark 4.40. They were fearful on the lake. They didn't believe in Jesus. And again, the unbelieving, that's also used about the disciples. Matthew 17.17, 17, John 20.27, 20, and about believers in Titus 1.15. Then liars, the book of Revelation only uses that word once in one other place, and that's at the beginning, in chapter 2, verse 2, where we're told that people in one of the ecclesias were liars. Then you come on to abominable murderers, whoremongers, etc. You know, those Greek words are again used in the New Testament about wrong behavior within the ecclesia. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 11, Hebrews 12, 16, Hebrews 13.4 So then these people that you read about there are people possibly who you and I might have known people who were called to be in God's kingdom maybe people who were in the ecclesia and they won't be there now I'm not trying to use negative psychology and neither is God to kind of scare us into sort of being good because that doesn't work um, but you can't odds it you can't avoid it knowing therefore Paul says the terror of the Lord and he's talking about condemnation of the last day we persuade men to be obedient to God this sense of the future that we might miss that should never ever be lost on us I, I think once that sense is lost then we're in a very dangerous position now who else gets thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone I mean it's very much alluding to uh, Sodom's destruction well it's the, the beast and the dragon and all that they get chucked in the, uh, in the same place and I think the implication is that these people within the ecclesia or have been called to be responsible to God and who didn't want it who lived another way that they are going to share the sufferings of this world Paul says in a breaking of bread context in 1 Corinthians 11 that if we examine ourselves now and realize we should be condemned that's okay, that's good if we would judge ourselves if we would condemn ourselves we will not be condemned but he warns them that if you do not do this if you think you're okay then you will be, he says condemned with the world that is I think all that Jesus is really effectively going to say to those who don't make it as it were who don't want to be in his kingdom okay you don't want to be here so go just go to the world that's where you wanted to be you wanted to be with the guys from work you wanted to hang out all the time with, uh, with the world okay just go back to it and that's it exist there and die with them and so that is the that, that's what makes all this so relevant I think to the breaking of bread because where do we want to end up with the world or with Jesus and now is the time and particularly I think the breaking of bread meeting is designed to bring us to a T-junction to realize that our destiny really has only two, two possible exits to the right or to the left and that we are to, to make that realization now and so as I keep saying, this whole thing, the whole wonder of all this, is starting now. When you think of the, uh, the wonder of all this, I mean, what's your reaction? If you really believe it, you want to share it with other people.
Now, chapter 22, verse 2, says that in the midst of the street and on either side of the river there was the forest of life, these uh, trees of life which bore fruit for, for the uh, healing of the nations. Now, that's quoting from Psalm 1, verse 3, that says that the righteous man in this life is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And I think that's talking about what you do for others. If you are offering them fruit for their healing, whatever you do in that work, if you like, of witness, of, of assistance uh, to others in coming to the kingdom, that will always prosper. And yet, those words of Psalm 1 verse 3 that are about the righteous man in this life are quoted about how it will be in this wonderful time when the kingdom is established <clears throat> and we shall be for the healing of the nations. That, that the whole point is that it's started now. The process has started. It's not just jam tomorrow. It's not just good time to come. It's started now. Verse 14 Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. Now, on one hand, we're going to be like, no, I shouldn't be there. I should not be there. And yet, in another sense, we will have right. And this is only because, as we started off by saying, we are in Christ, and all that is true of him is true of us, and his righteousness is counted to us. Colossians 1 says that we are, the AV says we are meat, we are appropriate to be partakers of the, inher <clears throat> the inheritance of the saints in light. We walk worthy of the Lord Jesus, that passage says, unto all pleasing of him. Now how can we totally please Jesus? How can that be, that you absolutely and totally please Jesus? Well, it can only be, as I see it, because we are counted by him as if we are like that. So then, this really is why we are to prepare ourselves with that white raiment, which is a belief that we are covered in his righteousness. And finally, verse 17, Let him that hears all this say, Come. Let him that is a first come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely, that is, in this life. Perceiving the wonder of all this, that I will be there, that this wonderful final consolation is my consolation in my life and in the struggles of, of my existence. If you really believe this, you cannot be passive about that good news. You are going to nudge the, the guy next to you and say, come, come with me. And so on the basis of our very definite belief that because the Lord died for us, and rose again, and we who are in him by baptism, that we are counted as him, we really will be there, this wonderful future is ours, and we therefore respond to it by saying to other people, come.